a deep dive into NRA financial documents exclusively obtained by The Reload, and an interview with accounting professor Brian Mittendorf. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and pick up a membership today if you want exclusive access to dozens of reports and analysis pieces on firearms from a sane, sober perspective, uh, an informed and independent operation. Uh, head on over, check out what we've got to offer uh, at, at TheReload.com. We've got monthly memberships, yearly memberships, and even a lifetime membership if you want to do a little more to support our operation, to support what we're doing. It's 100% reader funded. Um, and you will also get access to this podcast a day early, as well as the opportunity to appear on an episode of the podcast if you want. Uh, we have member segments where we'll have a Reload member on to, to give us their backstory and, and tell us a little bit about why they joined up at the Reload. It's a very interesting community we've started to build here, which I'm very excited about. But this episode, we are going to be speaking with uh, Brian Mittendorf, who's a professor of accounting at The Ohio State University and somebody who has followed the National Rifle Association's tax filings for years. Uh, We're going to be talking a bit about the NRA's financial reports that the the Reload actually exclusively obtained and published this week. Uh, you can go read more about it over at thereload.com. But Brian uh, gave us uh, his perspective for some of those stories, and we wanted to have him on for a full piece. Brian, can you tell people a little bit about yourself a little more? Sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I have a lot of respect for the work that you've done and following the NRA, and um, it's great to join you. So uh, I, as you mentioned, I, as background, I, I'm an accounting professor, so my background is in accounting and particularly in working with nonprofit organizations and their financial statements. So that's sort of what got me interested in following the the NRA, you know, for many years. And one reason is just, you know, their their visibility in the space. They're a nonprofit that most people have heard of. So particularly in, in with working with my students, it's a nonprofit they've heard of, so it's much easier to discuss their financial picture. But as you mentioned, I've been following them for years and seeing really the drastic changes their finances have seen. Yeah. And, uh, and to be clear, if, you know, before we get into some of the, the details that are in this um, document that we've uh, published over at the Reload, uh, the, the NRA is by far the largest gun group in the country. Um, it's not even really close uh, with any other groups out there. I mean, on either side of the issue. I mean, uh, it's, it's honestly bigger by multitudes over all the other pro-gun groups combined on a national level. Um, usually most of them are in the, you know, low seven figures, maybe eight figures if they're lucky um, situation for, you know, a lot of the other pro-gun groups. And then even the the uh, gun control groups still don't really hold a candle as far as their revenue or their membership to the NRA. And I, I think you, that still remains true even today, um, even with the, some of the revelations that are in this uh, this report that we got. This is the um, August 2021 financial statement package that we were able to obtain uh, that was prepared by 
the NRA's treasurer, uh, Sonia B. Rowling. So she's the new treasurer. They uh, had a lot of issues with their previous treasurer. sort of one of the main controversial figures in, in uh, the recent turmoil and legal cases that have surrounded the NRA. Uh, but the, the new treasurer, who was once a, uh, actually a whistleblower uh, initially, um, put this report together for the NRA's finance committee. So it gives, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly detailed. Um, it's actually probably the most detailed um, report about the NRA's finances, at least on like a line item basis, that I think has ever been made public. If I'm, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, have you? Would you say that's accurate? I would agree. So, I mean, there's certainly some information in the 990s that's not covered here, but in terms of kind sure. of like the overall financial picture, it gets in. It's it's clearly an internally focused document that gets into more of the line by line details for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously the 990, you get some of the salary information that's not in here. Like in the 990, they have to report was at the top five um, most highly paid employees. Like so, Wayne LaPierre's salary would be in there, and and a number of other leadership positions would they'd have their salaries disclosed in there, which which isn't it doesn't get quite that detailed in this report, but but you do get quite a lot of detail on really every facet of of what the group does now. I guess so. I guess uh, to, to help pe people understand what, what we're even talking about here, this report is specifically about um, the NRA, the National Rifle Sa Association of America, which is a 501c4, right? Now, the NRA, as people conceive of it, is actually a number of different groups. Isn't that right? Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction actually to make, especially when we're thinking about their finances. Uh, so, kind of the, the main group is the membership organization, the five hundred one C four, and that's this one. And for the most part, these financial statements focus on that, though it has some information about the others. It does. Yeah. Um, and and you know, really, as a starting point for anyone interested in in the financial picture of the organization, it helps to get a sense of there is the the membership organization, the five hundred one C four. There's the largest 501c3 that's affiliated, which is the NRA Foundation, and then there's some other smaller affiliated uh, yeah, charities as well. Um, there's three other ones, right? And then there's the the Political Action Committee, and and then there's also a Super PAC now too. Oh, there is. Okay, so yes. um, so, so you know, it's like one, seven groups. One piece that's that's interesting to think about there is when when you're thinking about what their their finances look like is are we talking about the membership organization or are we talking about the the collective as a whole because they also have right. consolidated financial statements that cover the 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 entire entirety of this the the tent of the organization. Yeah, I would, that, say, I would say they, they make them available, but we, we, yeah. they've been available. I don't think they regularly make those publicly available. Well, they though. they make those available to members okay. at the membership meeting. Yeah. So you know, previous reporting that I've done on the NRA's finances have been from those annual reports that the NRA gives out at its members meeting to to members, um, which are consolidated reports. So it's it's basically the overall picture of the entire. Uh, you know, seven organization. But there's also there's also the Institute for Legislative Action, which is not as my understanding is not a separate entity from mm -hmm. the C4, the you know NRA of America. It's just sort of a subdivision of of that C4 that focuses exclusively on you know political campaigning and lobbying. And within the so the reason I guess we should just 
briefly explain for people who don't understand all this stuff, because I know it gets very confusing. The reason that the NRA is set up this way, and frankly, a lot of major political groups are set up exactly the same way, right? And right. to be clear, right? Um, they do that because of various uh, federal tax and campaign finance laws. So some of these groups can only spend so much money in certain ways. Some of them can't spend any money on, you know, in political campaigns. Some of them can only do advocacy for political issues, but not candidates. They can't endorse candidates. Uh, some of them can directly endorse and give money to candidates. So the reason that there are six, seven, eight, it's, I guess it's eight if you count Isla as a, as its own thing, there's seven separate entities. Uh, but the reason that it's like that is so that they can bring in a lot of money and, and then use it to their best advantage legally by passing it through different organizations or having people give to one organization instead of another, depending on what they're trying to accomplish. Right. So just to get that, just yeah. to be clear about why it's like this, because I know it and like sounds you said, it's not very unusual. Confusing. It's uh, it's not a lot of organizations that are five one c fours will have affiliated 501c3 organizations. It's if you're engaging in activities which have a approved charitable purpose, there's good reason to do it using a 501c3 because you can accept tax deductible donations. But not right. everything that say the NRA does can fall into that umbrella. And so right. So you're right. It, so that's why it's, it's nothing like. unusual about that other than it makes it a little bit more challenging to think about the financial picture of the organization because yeah. The 501c4 is the one that's faced, uh, you know, on paper, has faced more financial challenges than the 501c3. But you can't just freely move money from one to the other to fix up those problems uh, right. because, like you, you said, of the rules surrounding how the money is spent. Correct. Although there are ways to move money from these different groups legally. Uh, for instance, the NRA will charge rent to the foundation. Right, uh, because the foundation is based out of a building that the NRA's 501c4 owns, right? So that, and that again is also not an uncommon thing Correct. to see in, in these kinds of groups or illegal. There's nothing nefarious or illegal or uncommon about doing that. I mean, you know, obviously people can judge for themselves what if they like the the way that that's set up, but that's how it works. It's not. There's nothing controversial about the NRA doing that, but. But I mean, I guess the clear. one one thing to mention, yeah. is not to get too off track of what you're wanting to talk about, sure. is yeah, so you can share employees, you can share resources. Mm -hmm. uh, the NRA can be given grants to do things in furtherance of the mission of the of the foundation, um, but there are limits to that. And so, right. you know, I think the the Washington D.C. suit really is focused on that. Were there uh, was it appropriate the amount of money that was moving from one organization to the other? And, you know, yeah, I, obviously I can't speak to whether it was or not, but um, there are limits to that. That's a good point. Yeah. And the, the NRA has faced uh, accusations that they broke some of those rules over the years. That's And that is there is an ongoing lawsuit uh, from the District of Columbia against the foundation uh, over that those accusations. So, you know, you know, the, but the, the reason that's set up that way is so that they can best operate as a very large political entity mm -hmm. while taking advantages of all of the different tax laws and doing things as efficiently as possible. And yes, there is some generally that is not, you know, that, that is a common practice and it's not illegal 
but if you cross certain lines or do things in certain ways, it could be illegal. And, uh, and so, yeah, the NRA has been accused of, of those sorts of tactics um, to this point, but they're obviously, they're still in court over that's not, they haven't been convicted on, on that point. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Uh, at this point. Anyway, it's, all that's just to say that this document doesn't, uh, one of the reasons this is particularly um, interesting is that it's not the combined uh, accounts because that, like I said, like we mentioned earlier, that's what they give out at the members meeting. So those are readily available. This is just for the membership organization. So if, when you go and buy an NRA membership, this is the organization that gets your money uh, and that services your membership. They, they're they the ones that also uh, generally provide um, safety and training is done through the 501c4. So if you, if you go take an NRA um, pistol course or something along those lines, that's done through the this organization. The competitive shooting uh, events that they host are done through this. Um, you know, if you go to the annual meeting of the NRA, the big event, 80,000 people attend, that's done through this organization. Um, and a lot of the political action is is done through a lot of the lobbying. So th this is kind of the core group that most people would think of as the NRA. Um, uh, you know, so uh, it's interesting to get sort of a deep insight into exactly how they're operating, especially in 2021, given some of the struggles that they faced dating back to 2019, when these allegations of corruption uh, against Wayne LaPierre and other leadership came up, uh, you know, where, where they were accused of diverting millions of dollars I and mean, tens of millions of dollars really over decades uh, from the organization to their own personal expenses, like private flights or vacations or luxury clothing, or even uh, one point uh, attempting to buy a house with NRA money for uh, Wayne LaPierre that, that, that fell through, but there was a plan to do that. But anyway, that you've seen, and it comes across very clearly in these documents that the group has really shrunk significantly since 28, since, since that, information came out. 2018 was their peak. They're about half of what they were back in 2018. Yeah. If you think on, on the expense side, especially like how much money they're spending, uh, it's, it's fallen drastically. Now, like you said, lots happened in 2021 and 2020. That's, mm -hmm. that might explain some of, some of this drop, but really we've, if you think of kind of, you know, on the expense side, obviously the, the high point was 2016, and we've we've seen kind of a, a steady steady drop since then, um, and you you would expect kind of presidential election years would be when you see the bump back up, um, yeah. and it didn't happen, and so kind of this drastic drop, like you said, their their expense budget basically cut in half in the course of, of a couple of years. Um, it's quite drastic, especially when you take into account the fact that. While that was, while their total expenses have been almost cut in half, their legal fees, their legal expenses have been going up. So in terms of their other areas of expenses, the the cuts are even more drastic. Yeah, their legal fees, uh, according to this document, now make up almost twenty percent of all their expenses. So one in five dollars that the NRA spent uh, in the first eight months of of twenty twenty one went towards legal fees. It went to to their lawyers. Um, uh, and I believe mainly the lawyers outside of the organization. So, you know, uh, Bill Brewer is their main outside 
uh, counsel who's kind of been the um, mastermind of their legal strategy since uh, 2019. Uh, they Obviously, they filed for bankruptcy in 2021, and that cost them quite a lot of money. Even though it, uh, it failed, they got their case got dismissed. Uh, it was a, sort of a way to try and avoid the New York uh, legal action against mm-hmm. the organization that, where the attorney general there, Letitia James, who's a Democrat um, and a, a staunch NRA opponent and critic, of course, is, is also attempting to dissolve the organization for these over these allegations of corruption uh, that we mentioned earlier. Uh, but Bill Brewer has been kind of the the mastermind of trying to deal with that case and their sort of big play to file federal bankruptcy to kind of um, remove the NRA from New York jurisdiction didn't it didn't work and it cost them quite a lot of money. I think that's probably a big part of why they spent thirty one million dollars on uh, these these legal fees. Yeah. And, I, you know, the, the weird contrast here is I would say it, it's kind of surprising the increase in legal fees, but it's also consistent with the trend. I mean, their their legal fees have been going up. Like you said, since 2018, mm-hmm. we've seen, you know, 2018 to 2019, their legal fees or legal expenses went up about 50 percent. The next year they went up another 12 percent. And now, it, you know, from the looks of this this report, we're looking at another double digit percentage increase in legal expenses. Um, To be able to sustain that level of rise in expenses is pretty, is pretty surprising. But like you said, there's, there's lots of legal action out there involving the organization. Well, I guess uh, real quick, we can go over what the NRA has said about this report itself. Cause you know, we've mentioned here the, the sort of the, the big takeaways they've, their revenue and spending has been cut in half from 2018 to 2021, their membership is down. Uh, the, the reason the revenue is falling is because membership dues have fallen by half as well. Uh, and overall membership numbers are down too. Um, and then, you know, their legal spending has skyrocketed. It's now nearly 20% of their expenditures are for, for legal fees, uh, which is 10 times what uh, they spent on, uh, I have it listed out here, education and training, competitive shooting, law enforcement, community engagement, the NRA range, the NRA firearms museum, and school security combined. So that just to give people an wow. idea of how much they're spending on this, it's also more than they spent on all of the Institute for Legislative Action. It's the, the only, it's their second biggest expense. It's second only to uh, their, what they spend, what they spend to, uh, get and keep members that was still more than this but but it's their second biggest expense according to this report this internal report so um you know th- those are sort of the some of the big takeaways but here's what uh, amy hunter who's the director of media relations uh, said about what's in this report and responding to some of the questions that i uh, presented to them she said the subject matter uh, <clears throat> the subject matter here is outdated unaudited financial report. Um, naturally, the NRA is not inclined to discuss non-public business strategies with those outside the organization. In any event, the NRA report is, as, object, uh, as objective observers agree, very positive. We sank an ATF nominee who was adverse to the Second Amendment, 
We are winning many battles to elect pro-Second Amendment lawmakers. We're driving the passage of constitutional carry, the gold standard of self-defense. And we are confronting a New York attorney general who openly vowed to destroy our organization. With respect to legal fees, we are defending the interests of our members against people who betray them as terrorists and criminals. The New York attorney general called the NRA a terrorist organization and a criminal enterprise before she was even elected without a shred of evidence to support her claims. Um, and she also addressed uh, how the pandemic has affected the organization, which is which is certainly, I would say, another factor of what's going on here. They made a, quite a lot of layoffs in 2020 as the pandemic uh, began, and they haven't really hired back most of those people to this point. But uh, here's Amy Hunter's quote again, uh, second part of her quote. With respect to questions comparing figures from pre-pandemic 2018 to 2020, figures during a worldwide pandemic, the NRA, like many others, continues to confront this global pandemic that forced the cancellation of many events and impacted revenue streams. The safety and well-being of our staff and members is paramount. Through it all, the NRA has emerged stronger, better positioned to fight for its members and their freedoms. The association and its patriotic members deserve an enormous amount of credit. So that, that's the NRA's statement. Um, now in there, she says that um, objective observers will agree that this report was very positive. And I, what is your overall take on this report? That that's interesting. I I wasn't sure whether to interpret is the report is positive or the the achievements they've had this year. In terms of the report, I mean, I guess here here's the positive part for them. They they've certainly shored up their their finances to the extent that, you know, they they had been accumulating liabilities while their assets were not keeping up. And so, you know, the, the financial cushion they had was, had gotten really, really razor thin. Um, and in the past two years, despite the fact there's COVID, the last two years, um, we've seen that financial cushion get built back up. And so in terms of their, their overall financial health, the fact that, um, you know, their their financial position does not justify bankruptcy. You know, all those things sound good for their finances. Um, I mean, I think the challenging part is the way they've gotten there is just by drastically cutting what they've spent money on. It's not that their membership has grown or that their donations have gone up. Their their revenue stream has not been what's supported that. Their, their revenue stream has shrunk. The reason their finances have improved is because they've cut programs drastically or cut spending on them at least. Yeah. Um, I mean, but to, I guess to Amy's point there, uh, they were in the black technically through the first eight months of, of 2021, they had about a million dollar surplus, which was actually down from the previous year where they had had, what was yeah, it? So they saw six million, six point seven million surplus, surplus in 2020 as well. Um, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, as you pointed out there, the, the way that they've gotten to that is by cutting all the services that I think most people would associate with the NRA. Now, I, I think it's fair to point out, right, that uh, even during early 2021, there were probably still a lot of places where it was restricted um, to the point where it might be difficult to do an NRA training course or something like that indoors. Although I think feel like by 2021, most of those sorts of restrictions had been lifted in most parts of the country. Um, so, you know, that's where it gets kind of harder to understand how the pandemic 
would make their 2021 numbers worse than their 2020 numbers. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you have some more insight there. I don't know. No, I mean, I think these are things certainly to consider that that pandemic conditions have affected a lot of nonprofits. Those those in general who have been affected the most are the ones who did in-person activities or relied on in-person activities for revenues. Which the um, internet, to be fair, that they do rely on like the annual meeting to bring in a lot of revenue. Yeah. Not not most of their revenue or not, but I mean, uh, I they've think- had to cancel that two years in a row. So I'm, you know, I don't I don't want to discount the effect that that's had. That's legit. There's certainly legitimate points in what the NRA is saying there. Yeah, things that would be that would be working against um, kind of a scaling up of the organization. I I think it it does though point back to a, a bigger question, and maybe people are more aware of this now because of the the financial troubles that the organization has had. But in terms of very prominent national organizations, like you said, they've they've been there for a long time, um, but they've never really had the financial cushion that you would expect. Uh, you know, if you compare to like. Maybe it's at the other extreme, but like the AARP is another well-known 501c4, very different cause, obviously. But they, you know, in terms of their financial cushion, we're talking over a billion dollars. Even the ACLU, another 501c4, well-known, their financial cushion in the hundreds of millions. Um, NRA, we're talking tens of millions. And so their financial cushion is is pretty small relative to their their kind of public-facing view. And like I said, a lot of people what probably know by, that at this point, but what do you mean by financial cushion? I guess there, I'm thinking, uh, you know, from my standpoint, it's it's the net assets. It's how much assets they have that they don't they don't owe to others in the form of liabilities. Um, and so, you know, if there's a downturn, a lot of people can can weather a downturn without drastically cutting costs because they have that cushion uh, on hand. Um, and, and the NRA has has had relative to these other organizations, a pretty small financial cushion. So they don't, they don't have the luxury of just saying, we're going to, we're going to rely on the extra reserves we're sitting on instead of cutting back on our programs or instead of cutting back on employees, we're going to rely on our reserves because they didn't have a whole lot of reserves. Um, And the weird thing is during this time, they've actually increased their reserves. Yeah, actually that's speaking of their, you know, what, what certainly appears to be a positive thing on first glance the fact that they've paid down, it appears, um, $14 million, $14.7 million worth of their uh, their major credit line here. They've, they've paid off a bunch of debt. Like Certainly, that, that sounds like a positive thing at first glance. But to me, it makes me wonder, why, why did they do that? Why did they pay off so much? That's half of that debt. Uh, that's more money that they spent on uh, general operations, all the all the safety and training, competitive shooting stuff that I mentioned earlier. What would be the you think the reason that they would make such a massive debt payment like that? You know, um, they they had gone the other direction, like you know, starting around 2016 was kind of the extreme that they had been spending more than that was coming in, and so they were kind of debt financing some of their activities, and so eventually that was going to have to work the other direction. They were going to have to pay off some of that that debt, you know, why at this point in time is when they did it. I I, I can't speak to that um, exactly. It makes makes sense to me that they would maybe start paying down the debt instead of accruing more of it, given what you're saying here. It just seems like so that's such a huge amount to pay off and a large percentage too. It's like half of what they'd owed in eight months. 
It just yeah, it seems that's interesting. I mean, even the previous odd. year, they had paid down a lot. They had and they had previously borrowed five million dollars from the NRA Foundation. They they repaid that, I believe, in 2020. Um, so they had kind of done this debt accumulation, and they're kind of unraveling some of that. That it sounds negative. It's not intended to be negative. If if you accumulate a bunch of debt, you you're going to want to be able to pay it down. But like you said, right. these are not like gradual changes. This is a pretty drastic change over the course of two years. Um, yeah, I think that's what makes it seem like almost, you know, obviously if most people would think paying off your debt, that's an, that's always a positive yeah. thing. But when you're running an organization like the NRA and one of your biggest expenditures is on paying off, when you're paying off more debt than you are in providing services to members, like it seems like a weird priority to me, it just like I don't understand why they wouldn't budget for a longer term payoff unless maybe they were forced to, or I don't. It just seems like such a strange uh, thing to do when, when like you know, you're spending eight million nine million dollars total on your general operations. Um, you know, like I said, you know, your law enforcement training, your your a lot of the stuff that people know and love the NRA for. That stuff's getting cut while you're making these huge debt payments. Uh, it's just uh, I don't I don't really understand the logic there. I don't maybe have you seen other groups that are in this sort of financial situation cut the programs like this in order to try and pay down their debt? Uh, is just I, I mean I guess I just just about getting better in a better financial footing. Is that? I mean I guess all of all of these trends that we we've seen elsewhere on maybe smaller scale or a wider time horizon. Um, I think the 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 interesting thing here is just how how quickly this happened. And, you know, if you kind of think about it, say back in 2016, the members were paying a certain amount and the NRA was spending on a lot of things. So, you know, if, if you're a member and you like what they're spending on, you'd say, we're getting a lot of bang for our buck. Now, like you said, members, you know, revenues are down, but members are, have member dues are still bringing in a, a good chunk of revenue. The amount of money spent on things that you can call, you know, servicing members directly, has shrunk really drastically, and I, you know, ultimately, what you're pointing to, I think, is one of the big risks that's out there for them. They, they've they've sort of right-sized their budget in a way that the expenses better match what the revenues are now. Um, but how are donors or members, in this case, more members, how are they going to feel about that um, if all those programs are are cut to that level? Do they still feel like they're getting? Their bank enough bang for their buck with their membership dues, um, and I think that's the big open question. And and you, uh, and I want to get into what you think some of the consequences of that will be in a moment. But uh, there's, there's also like questions about why, you know, obviously when you get a document like this and it gives you the expenses and revenue for every department across the organization. It's easy to go in there and say why are they spending here and not there, and you're just kind of acting as a, you know, a director yourself, you know, a director from the outside. Right? And so it's easy, you know, you can come up with all kinds of questions of why did you, prefer, why did you guys prefer this thing over that? But I think there's a lot of fair questions to that point. I mean, especially with the way that they've funded general operations, they're, you know, the, the safety and training law enforcement, competitive shooting, a lot of these things are actually bringing in money for them more than they cost. So it's, you know, it's weird that they're, They've cut so much from them. Um, 
when there there actually seem to be profit generating areas of the 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 organization. You know, I mean, the, for example, education and training. They spent four hundred thirty one thousand dollars on that, and it brought in two point three million dollars for them. So it was positive by one point eight million dollars. And it's like, why didn't they act to put more resources mm. into that area? It's just. Uh, it's just kind of odd. Um, some of the decisions that were made, uh, you know, I guess it's, yeah, obviously you're not on the board, so you, you can't really justify no, it. For us, there's no inside information uh, as to how they work. I mean, I guess the one caution or caveat in interpreting this is, especially for internal accounting numbers, hmm. it's hard to know how they got to the point they, they got to there with those internal numbers. And, and so how best to interpret them without hearing from someone inside the organization you know, one point. challenge, especially on the education side is, you know, I, I can't say for certain, but my guess would be a lot of the educational activities they conduct are reimbursed or, or given in the form of grants from the foundation because education mm, right. certainly could fit with the foundation's mission. That does and, make a lot of sense. Um, yes. That's a good point. So it might be easier to support those things financially because the foundation does have plenty of resources. They just happen to be much more restricted as to what they can be used for. Sure. Um, Although um, one one piece that we that I did a members only uh, piece on this, but the, there is some information on like the foundation and the other uh, 501c3s mm -hmm. that the NRA is affiliated with as part of this larger you know, conglomeration. Um, and one of those areas is in planned giving, right? And they have a breakout here of the plan giving that they bring in each year, you know, how, how many of the plan giving is basically, this is a state and trust giving. So people will write the NRA into their will. So when they, when they pass away, the NRA gets some percentage of their, of their, uh, state. And uh, this actually from, I spoke to a former staffer at plan giving, uh, who worked in this area at the NRA for years and they, they told me that it can actually, you know, I know a lot of people will think that's rich people are giving them money when they pass away and they're giving it. And that's true. That happens. But apparently this is something that's uh, common among all kinds of NRA members. You know, whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. A lot of people will leave. Some people who aren't wealthy will leave everything they have to the NRA because they believe in the, the mission so much. Uh, and, and this has been a, a fairly significant portion of their fundraising for years. It's not the majority, but uh, according to this document, you know, they've, they've brought in $132 million in planned giving uh, between 2006 and 2020. So, you know, it's a lot of money and they still have another 335 million already pledged to them in this way. But the issue comes in when you look at the numbers through 2020 and the numbers, especially through the first eight months of 2021, where, uh, you know, for instance, in 20, you know, 19, they had brought, they had signed up $36.5 million worth of revenue from this, you know, new pledges that put the NRA in their will, essentially. By 2020, it had fallen to 22.2 million. And then through the first eight months of 2021, it, it had fallen all the way to 5.4 million. And this is, this is a number for the entire organization that includes the foundation, which is also a huge beneficiary of this kind of giving, but it, it includes the, their civil rights defense fund, which they use to fund uh, like 
you know, gun rights lawsuits, um, the Freedom Action Fund, which is a get out the vote nonprofit, 501c3, uh, the Special Contribution Fund, which is used to help uh, run their shooting center out in New Mexico, though, is it the Winning Winter Center? I, I apologize, I've mispronounced the name there, but it's a shooting and hunting preserve that the NRA runs, and they use a nonprofit to fund that. Uh, and then, you know, you have the C4 and ILA also get these sorts of gifts. And so the drop-off there has been incredible. Um, have you ever seen something like that? I mean, at, at other nonprofits of the size of the NRA? Yeah, I, I guess not to just keep coming with accountant caveats here, but right. the, the one caveat, it depends on how the accounting is done and what, what, what permits them to record this, you know, for if this were an audited gap financial statement, there's very particular rules about how, at what point can you record this as being a contribution? It has to be an unconditional gift. It has to well, be. Well, this isn't the, this um, is just them. The do, they're just talking about the document documentation establishing. Trust. Yeah. So like internally speaking, what they might record as, we have now received a gift might not account for accounting purposes, but either way, um, you know, whichever way they get to this with, with planned giving, you often see huge fluctuations uh, because if you have you know, like one big gift might get recorded one year, even if it's going to come yeah, this in cash over in. years, right? Right. This isn't um, money brought in. This is money that's pledged and it's been pretty consistent according to this document until I was going to say the, the one thing is that they have they have actually seen some consistency, so it, it might reflect that you know they have they have a wider set of of donors here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. Apparently, so there they can get be fluctuations, um, and and as you hinted, a lot of this involves tax planning. So a lot of that's going to go more likely than not. More of it's going to be going into these the C threes, particularly the the foundation, certainly, yeah. which which somewhat limits what can be done with that from the NRA standpoint. But I, I think another thing which you had pointed out previously, you know, their their advancement staff, the people who yeah. work on getting these donations has has dropped quite a bit. And so um, one would expect their ability to raise money uh, in this form is also going to drop. So we can't say for sure whether this is a, a new normal for them, this huge drop off. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they've they've cut back on on staff in this realm would suggest um, it's 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 likely to see decreases. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what it's just to me like that that kind of person uh, who give who gives the NRA their estate in their will or some percentage of it. Like that's got you know presumably that's your some of your most loyal supporters. You know you, you're not getting your uh, fence-sitting type supporters to give you money in their will most of the time. So uh, when you're getting, when it seems as though you're getting a relatively consistent amount of pledges each year to this, and then you have a sudden decrease, uh, that would just yeah. indicate to me, especially in connection with the other stuff we mentioned just about regular membership declining as well. Um, that And it might be, really, like you said, regular memberships declining, uh, some of that might be the form of short-term memberships, but I, I think mm -hmm. you might see the biggest effect on something like this. And think about it this way: that you know, a lot of these planned gifts, they take the form of yeah, it's some sort of legacy gift. It doesn't have to necessarily be in a in a state, but some sort of legacy sure. gift. Where we're thinking, 
I want to support the long-term mission here. And if you think if the organization recently filed for bankruptcy, it does raise a lot of questions about this, the long-term sustainability uh, from a donor standpoint. So it's much harder to convince donors to make a legacy gift at the same time the organization is saying we're bankrupt. Yeah, and, and, you know, and the bankruptcy didn't work work out the way they intended, and, and right. in fact, they they were quick to say we're it's we're bankrupt, but not that type of bankrupt, right? Right. Um, of course, that's but still, it makes it harder. It, it makes it harder to get those sorts of gifts. And um, yeah, and and to be fair, as as you mentioned, I think it's a combination of that and the layoffs. Uh, they they haven't apparently yeah. rehired most of the people in this particular division. So you, naturally, you're probably not going to get as many gifts if you don't have people out there trying to seek them. So, um, you know, that, that's, uh, it goes to, uh, to your, your point as well. Um, and actually, uh, we have the numbers here for planned giving. They, they spent, um, $294,000, about $295,000 on, on planned giving, which, uh, interestingly, and this is, uh, I guess one last point before I want to, uh, get into just your final thoughts overall, but, Interestingly, they, this is just one example, but you see this across the, the document. So the planned giving expenses were two, about 295000 They had budgeted for uh, over a million dollars worth of expenses in this division by this time. So they'd only spent, you know, they, they were way off in, in what they had budgeted. Uh, and you see this across just everything in here, whether it's membership dues that they were expecting to bring in, they were way off on that. Um, you know, renewals, they were way off. Is, is that unusual to see so much of them just be so wrong about some of these budgets that are in here? I mean, I guess a good question that we don't, I don't think we know the answer to is when the budget was set. But if we're talking about like at the beginning of the year, they set a budget for each month, um, you know, one challenge is, is it the annual budget and they've just divided it by 12 and split it across the eight months, in which case it might not really fully reflect what they expected to get through August. But that aside, I mean, I would say an organization, the, the uncertainty largely is on the revenue side. We don't know what sort of gifts we're going to get. So being under or over budget on the revenue side is easier to understand than being over or under budget, say like on the advancement expense side. We, we have a certain number of employees. We expect to pay them. Uh, it's a little bit surprising to be so far off budget. Now, whether travel costs or something explain this, but still in, in 2021, it's not like the pandemic was brand new to, at the start of 2021. So, um, so, it, so being so far off on some of the expense budgets is, is a little curious to me, but I'm not sure what their explanation is. Yes, I don't know either. That, that's just that's just one of the things I noticed reading through it. It's like they're very off on a lot of this stuff, including like even the the smallest things that you would expect there not to be uh, a lot of variance. It would like be predictable. Their, yeah, their cafeteria expenses where they were off on that, or, or you know, whatever. You know, there's a, there's there's just so many examples, and they they were off on some of the biggest things too, like membership and dues, because they had expected to bring in. Well, it's, oddly, they brought in more new members than they had budgeted for, so that they'd expected their 21,000, uh, almost 22,000 new members beyond what they had planned to be, at, you know, at uh, the 384,000 new members 
joined between yeah the first eight months of 2021, but they actually brought in less money from those people. That one might be understandable. That just depends on who's, you know, they were only off by, I mean, they're off by 773,000, but you know, uh, it's people don't buy the kind of membership they expect. You get a lot more one year's memberships instead of five year memberships. So mm-hmm. there's going to be, maybe that's not too bad, but they were way off on renewals. They had, they had almost a hundred thousand fewer renewals than they had expected by this point. And that put them off by 8.3, almost 8.4 million. Uh, and so it's, it's just, you look through this document and you're constantly seeing them being off in their budget predictions. And then also in, and then at the end, you also have comparisons back to last year at the same time. And they're way off on pretty much everything in terms of uh, revenue and uh, and expenses, except for, you know, of course, legal expenses and, and ILA as well did better than they expected, but hmm. or the better than it did last year. So yeah. um, I don't know. It's uh, I think bottom line, though, uh, you had mentioned earlier that the overarching issue here for the group is that they're they're in better financial shape, but it's at the cost of member services. And so while they have lost members, they're still pretty big, frankly. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're still at, you know, somewhere over between four and a half and five million. Um, and so it's still a very large organization. They haven't lost as many members as, as I think maybe you would even expect them to lose. Uh, I think when you uh, talk to you for the story, um, so but what's the danger here, though, in the long run of continuing on the way that they have? So I, mean, I think the big question is how loyal will these members stay? Uh, if, the, if the services are cut as drastically as they've been, you know, at what point do you start losing members? I, I'm not particularly savvy to the, the political angle here, but you can see in all their communication, including the one that you received in response to this, that it's certainly cast as a battle between their members and some political forces against them. Uh, and that it's a, it's a fine line between being a battle between their members and the political forces and it really being a battle between their members and their leadership. And I think they're really trying to prevent it being a battle between their members and their leadership because, you know, the, the leadership certainly has cut spending on member services, uh, and and so I think they're they're really trying hard to keep it from being, from being that. But you know the question is how how loyal are members going to be? At, at what point are members going to say, too little spending is on things that we view as the primary mission of the organization? And if that if they start losing members, and like you said, they've lost some, but not drastically. Um, but if if you know the question is is that going to start spiraling? If they start losing members, then they have to cut back, and then lose more members and cut back. At what point does that become unsustainable? Um, but so far, you know, they have lost members. The member revenue is down, but not to the extent the expenses are. Um, and so, th- I think that's the ultimate question: How long can they can they get the members to hang in there, um, and, and kind of tolerate this bumpy bumpy road? Hmm. But you do see certainly a potential for them to make a turnaround, uh, given how large the membership still is even now. Yeah. I mean, I, people had, had over the last several years, I've heard a lot of predictions about at the end of the NRA. I think with the loyal membership base, the size that they have, um, it would be really hard to, to, 
to completely destroy an organization like that. I, I think um, it has shrunk, but they have that loyal membership base that certainly can help them recover. And like I said, I think the big question is, will that membership base stay loyal given the decisions the organization has made? And as long as that membership base stays there, um, they can certainly turn it around. Um, you know, I, from their standpoint, you know, at some point, all these legal costs have to go away and then they'll have yeah. more money for other things. Although I guess that question is, uh, how, the, the big question is how all those legal fights work. How they out. end, right? And so I would yeah. say like on the how they end, it is again, two different perspectives. One would say, look at all these legal expenses that have been thrust on the organization. And others would say, look at all these legal expenses that the that the leaders of the organization have brought upon themselves, sort of, right? So it, it depends on which angle you come from there. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's uh, that's obviously the ongoing debate among NRA members right now. I think. I'm sure. So, yeah. Um, but we appreciate you coming on to share your expertise with us and give us some better insight into this document and what it tells us and what you know what we sh we can glean from it and. Obviously, there's a lot more in here than than what we've been able to talk in, about in just this 45 minutes. But but uh, I think we've covered some of the biggest pieces, and and we'll we'll have more to reload as things go along about the NRA's position and and what's coming down the line for it. But and perhaps we'll have you on again uh, in the future when we get some more financial information from them. That would be great. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, I look forward to continuing to see your reporting on this. All right. Uh, it's time for the news update with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. And this week, obviously, we're going to be talking a little more in depth about the exclusive document that we've obtained here at The Reload um, and published. Jake had a piece that was specifically about the membership numbers and data that's in this report that relates to that. Obviously, we mentioned earlier with uh, Professor Mittendorf that membership has... Uh, the revenue from dues has fallen, well, by about half since 2018, uh, according to this report. And I think that is a, a pretty huge deal. That's really the driver of the downturn overall in revenue for the NRA. But uh, I wanted to get a little more into the specifics with you, Jake. I think you wrote a whole story on this. So uh, what's... What is uh, one of the some of the big things that that stuck out to you that you put in your piece? Sure. Yeah. So uh, as you said, membership really is kind of the backbone of the NRA. It's where they usually get the bulk of their revenue. It's the bulk of their strength politically. Uh, but this report that we obtained uh, shows a little bit of a struggle that the organization has had, <clears throat> excuse me, over the last couple of years. Um, you know, in the past, they've claimed that they've had up to 6 million members um, in the NRA First Freedom magazine. For example, they published an article boasting that they've had 6 million members. Um, yeah, back in 2018, 2018, right? That was correct. the claim. Um, right. And obviously, we have a graph here that uh, that shows that that was never true. Correct. Or at least this graph contradicts that claim. Because um, when you look at it, uh, the, the number never even got to 5.5 million. So... We, we reached out to the NRA uh, on this, and then I read their statement earlier in the show, but they never specifically explained why there's this huge dichotomy between what they're – and, that, you know, that's not a – it's not like a, just a random official made this claim. That's their – one of their top magazines right. made this claim. 
uh, and uh, it's contradicted by their own internal report here. So it's a bit confusing as to why that is. Um, but but yeah, and then and then since that time, 2018 was the high water mark, though according to, right, at least according to the documents we have here, and they've uh, continued to see a decline. Is that correct in overall membership? That's right. Uh, year over year since 2018, um, there's been a decline. Um, it, it is worth noting 2018 was the high water mark. It was the only year on this report that they actually uh, were over 5 million members, which is, you know, when they don't claim 6 million, the common thing you hear is they're about 5 million strong. But it looks like that was only really the case in 2018. But as you say, since then, it's declined uh, pretty modestly. It was a big jump, big decline from 2018 to 2019, but more modestly since then. They're just over four and a half million or, or over four and a half million. It's tough to tell based on the graph. Yeah, we, they don't they don't give uh, this report doesn't have exact numbers on total members. They just put it in, into a bar graph. And uh, so it's, it's hard to get an exact feeling of that. But you're, you're correct. Only three of the since 2012, only three years they have on here actually breaching five million members at the end of the you know as the end of the year um now 2021 is a little different because it's that's as of august 31st so uh, perhaps they gained more uh, they netted more members by the end of 2021 that data is not uh, available and and won't be probably will never be public because this this sort of data is not the only time you ever hear about how many members the NRA has is from the NRA because they don't have to disclose this information um, as part of their normal, you know, reporting requirements for for their five hundred one c four. You know, they have to file certain tax documents with the IRS every year and certain states. So that's called a, a nine ninety, and that gives a lot of details. But they don't have to disclose their donors, and they don't have to disclose how many of them they have if they don't want to. And so usually they'll just talk about it in general terms and round numbers. Um, but this is the first really, uh, the, this is the most information that we've ever had about the NRA's membership. Um, and look, it doesn't, uh, I, other than that problem with, between the claim of 6 million and what the internal graph shows, you know, it's not, it's not wildly off from what they usually say. Sure. Um, although I guess to your point earlier here, that usually they'll say 5 million and what this shows is that they're not usually at 5 million. They're usually between four and a half million and five somewhere. Um, uh, that's what they are most years on this graph. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not, it's not as though they're constantly making up numbers, sure. um, outside of that one outside of 2018, which is a significant difference between what they've said and what's this internal report shows, uh, because you, you often will hear people uh, sort of infer that the NRA's num membership numbers are made up or illegitimate. Or whatever. Sure. And I, I always thought that wasn't necessarily the case, because honestly, what they've been saying publicly outside of 2018, when they claimed six million, like, you know, I wrote about this a while back during the bankruptcy, Wayne LaPierre gave the exact number, which was less than 5 million, uh, similar to what this report shows. But the thing is, 5 million was impressive in 2013 because they gained a million members that year. But they've been pretty consistently stagnant since that right. time. And I've written about this in the past for, for our members. Like, that's a problem, especially when you've seen huge 
gains in gun ownership over this time period. The, the gun sales were through the roof during this entire time period, and especially just recently. So, um, you know, 5 million is a huge number. It's biggest of any group by far is when you talk about dues paying members in the, in the gun world, uh, even still with the declines, they're still way, way beyond anyone else. But the, the long-term trend here is not that far off from what we know have known publicly and is not a positive. Right. <laughs> like it's a, a pretty negative uh, trend as far as membership goes, but, but you, uh, also went over, uh, in here, they compare 2021 to the previous right. year, right? The same period. And, and what are those numbers? Yeah, show? it kind of, to be honest, it kind of speaks to maybe some of the source of that stagnation because, uh, they, they wrote that from 2020, they have 384, roughly 384,000 new members that they, uh, achieved during that time period, the first eight months, and that's 22,000 mm -hmm. more than they projected. So that should be positive, right? That's 22,000 new members more uh, than they were even expecting. Right. But uh, they actually failed to retain members. Uh, they're short about 100,000 new me or retained members. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd mentioned this with uh, with Professor Mindorf. It's it's clearly like a I mean, it's also like they're they're way off on their projections for that too, what they had expected. So there's, I guess, it must have come as something of a surprise to them. It seems, but but they also have numbers in here comparing it to the previous year, right? And the 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 revenue that they brought in, correct? Uh, at least they don't they don't have the membership numbers, right? Um, they just have, they do have that graph that that section you're talking about where they give some insight into renewals and new members. Um, which I think if you project that out, there only have about 1.5 million people who um, would either be new members or renewals that year. So it, not the, that's the thing about NRA membership numbers is that they have a lot of different levels. So you have obviously lifetime members, which will not show up as renewals or new members ever because they're, they've made their one time uh, lifetime purchase. Now, that's not a lot of those people will also give money in form of membership contributions. It's just a different sort of category here that we also have data on. But, but um, then they also have five-year memberships, three-year memberships, two-year memberships, one-year membership, and so they might, even though they're on track to have a million, 1.5 million new and renewing members, if the trends keep from you know this document. Because again, this doesn't go through the whole year, but uh, that doesn't mean that the other four million, or the other three, three and a half million, or whatever it might be, um, are all lifetime members. They might also just be people who had longer terms whose memberships weren't up. But, but yeah, you had uh, a drop off across the board in in revenue from membership, right? right? Between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, is that? Yeah, so new member revenue was down two and a half million dollars just from 2020, um, and then revenue from renewals was down another four and four point eight million dollars. Um, so you know that's a pretty steep drop off for the largest source of revenue for the organization. Yeah, and then the same thing is true, actually, even more so for membership contributions. So people who are members, like I was talking about, perhaps a lifetime member that gives beyond you know, what they paid for the membership, those are contributions. And those, those dropped even more dramatically. Yeah. Nearly $10 million, $9.8 million from 2020. Yeah, that's, uh, that's rough. So overall they were down about 17.1 million 
between 2020 and 2021 when it comes to how much money their members were giving. I mean, now, to be fair, they're still at over $100 million in revenue just from memberships, right. uh, which sort of speaks to there's a lot of obviously, you know, controversy around the NRA and a lot of um, people will say different things about their their the gun lobby or they're wholly funded by the gun groups. And this data also, while it shows, you know, some very concerning things about uh, their funding, if you're a supporter of the NRA, uh, it also does show that the, ma- the the majority of their income is from their actual members, like, you know, membership dues and membership contributions. So, uh, you know, that's another important thing to, I, I think to point out, but, but overall the trend is, it's not pretty, right? It's yeah, it's certainly, uh, not the, uh, the brightest takeaway for an organization that already has enough trouble on its plate with legal battles that we've covered in the past, um, to, to lose nearly yeah. $17 million in, in revenue contributions year over year. It's a t- tough spot to be in. Yeah, to be fair, they did cut expenses as well. Sure. So uh, they they cut away about five point four million dollars worth of expenses when it comes to um, bringing in that money. Uh, so overall, they were down about eleven point seven million uh, compared to the previous, you know, to the period, the same period in twenty twenty. But uh, you know, the, that's still. Uh, you know, a really, a really bad trend. That's not something that I think anyone who supports the NRA uh, is going to look at and think is good news. Uh, it's clearly something they need to correct if they want to get back on track to growing the organization again, uh, which is, uh, you know, I, I was say just real quick here. <laughs> a lot of people will point out that there's there's a lot of discontent among former NRA members, or even people who might still be NRA members, their life members or something like that. Um, and you get, you hear often that, uh, you know, it's almost a good riddance sort of attitude to it. Uh, a lot of people don't like Wayne LaPierre over the allegations of corruption and some of the things he's even admitted to, you know, with these private jets and, and, uh, you know, luxury clothes and, and yacht trips and all, all the stuff that we've covered extensively. But um, I think one thing that's important to remember, if you're, especially if you're a gun rights supporter, but if you're just interested in guns generally, uh, in the in the topic, if you support stricter laws, whatever it might be, the NRA is very important. It, it really is. I know I've emphasized this a number of times, but the, they are so much bigger than everyone else in this space on either side of the issue that even if you don't want to give them money because of the situation going on, which, you know, obviously everyone's entitled to their opinion as far as that goes. Uh, you should recognize that when the NRA is doing poorly, that's bad for gun rights advocates generally, because they are the 700 pound gorilla in the room pretty much across the country. Not, you know, not, not that they're the most influential group in every state house or whatever. There's a lot of groups out there and there's the NRA is not the end-all, be-all when it comes to representing gun owners. You know, even five million members, as big as that is for a political organization, that's fairly small percentage of overall actual gun owners in the country, which are, you know, in the hundred million plus uh, category. But I just think it's important to remember when you're looking through these numbers that this is not just something that affects people who 
are NRA members or who work at the NRA or our NRA leadership, this really has a cascading effect across gun politics in the United States, whether you like the NRA or not. And so I just wanted to, to note that at the very end of the, our show here, because that, that's one thing, like whatever you think of the NRA, how it's doing financially matters a lot to everything when it comes to, to gun politics in the United States. I think that's a, I mean, I, yeah, what's your I take say, on that? I, I think I, that's, I just, a that's important I, thing to, to mention because you do see that kind of burn it down attitude a lot of the times when news breaks of another lawsuit or, you know, financial mishaps or whatever, but you, you do see a little bit of a burn it down attitude mm-hmm. among gun owners, but it, they are the, like you said, well, and I think, the biggest group in the, in the country. Yeah. Well, I just, I just think like, burn, it's, it's okay to think that the, you know, if, if, if Wayne's going to be in charge, I, I'd rather see it burned to the ground than, than give it money. Like that's a fair enough thing for people to believe. I just think it's, it's when you get into like, it doesn't matter if the NRA is doing poorly because GOA exists or SAF exists or FPC exists. Like, yes, those groups are, are doing good work. Those groups are the side, you know, you could make arguments about any group out there and why you might prefer them to the NRA or, or whatever, if you're a gun rights advocate, but those groups are, are tiny compared to the NRA, like just to be completely, so people understand it doesn't mean you shouldn't give money to them. I'm not saying anything one way or the other about who should get your money. I just want people to understand the reality of the situation because you can combine all of those gun rights groups together and their revenue will be nothing compared to the NRA. Um, now that that said, they're growing. Um, and if the NRA goes away, there's an opportunity there for, for another group that this size to come up because gun owners are still going to want that kind of advocacy on a national level. It's just that um, people should understand how much of a real world impact this has. It's not, it's not something that's limited to just the NRA's membership or its leaders or, or whoever. It's, it really will affect everybody. Absolutely. Uh, sorry, but, but yeah, finish your thought. I just, I, I, I didn't, I didn't mean to <laughs> interrupt you and go off on my own tangent. No, I think, I think you captured it well. Like you said, they're, um, they're obviously the, the longest standing group. Um, you know, that's not really easily replicable by other groups, despite their growing popularity. So, um, it's things that people should keep in mind, whether you're you know pro or against, because even people that want to see the NRA fail. I think they're kidding themselves if they think that's going to mean gun advocacy goes away. Um, and they might yeah, see that's good. As we've too. written about in the past, you might see the tone and tact change a little bit in how gun advocacy happens as well. If the NRA should go away. So there are all sorts of unintended consequences that could happen. Absolutely. And, and we're not here to, to advocate one way or the other in terms of whether you should give money to the NRA or you should give money to some other group or you should give money to every town or, or whoever. Like, that's not our goal here at The Reload. Like, we're just trying to inform people. And so I just think it's important for people to, to really understand the gravity of, of, what, go, of what happens at the NRA, because it's not, it's not something that's just contained to the NRA. It, it really, because of the the size and influence of the group, it has an impact on the entire gun spectrum uh, when it comes to policy or politics throughout the whole country. That's the thing about them. They're, they're, they're the biggest. That's why they matter so much. That's why we pay so much attention to them. Um, so uh, just to, cause I, you know, you see it all the time 
when whenever you talk about the NRA and some struggle they're having or the finances are bad or the new allegation of corruption against Wayne or so, whoever, you'll see a lot of people that just say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter because I give to this group or that group or, or what, you know, good riddance kind of thing. And it's, I might understand the, uh, I'm not trying to question somebody's uh, conclusions on that point. I just think everyone should understand how important the group is. It's, it really is that important <laughs> just to be, just to be, it's just like, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood, you could hate or love them, but uh, if they went bankrupt tomorrow, that would have a huge uh, effect on, uh, you know, the, the uh, pro-choice movement in the country, whether, even though there's other pro-choice groups that exist, right? So it's, it's just, so, and you can see, you can see this, with a lot of groups across a lot of different Absolutely. issues. I just want to, I just want to make that point before, we, before we head out here, but, um, but yeah, so that's, uh, if you, people should read more, they should go over and check out your story, check out all three stories. We've got more coming on, on this, uh, on this topic. Cause it, it is really a big deal. And there's really probably a dozen more stories we could pull out of this, this document. If other people don't get to them first, honestly, some of the other reporters out there, but it really is that detailed and that, that uh, new, we don't have this, you don't get this kind of information about the group really ever. Um, not this, not to this level, uh, not to this amount of granularity. So uh, we'll, we'll be bringing you more in the future. Don't worry. But uh, th that's it for this week's episode. I appreciate you tuning in. If you like what you heard, if you appreciate our reporting and you want to support it, you can head over to the reload.com. Right, Jake, we've got well, monthly memberships, yearly memberships. Even lifetime memberships. Lifetime yeah. memberships. Yeah. Uh, so what do people get if they, they sign up? Let's hear your pitch. So if you sign up, want to help support the Sane Sober Firearms Reporting and Analysis, you'll get plenty of member-exclusive pieces. Um, one of these NRA pieces is exclusive, too. So if you want to take a deeper dive, That's right. go ahead and sign up. You'll also get access to this podcast a day early. So if you want to see our pretty faces uh, a day early, go ahead and <laughs> uh, sign up. And you'll also have a chance to come on the podcast. So if any of you members out there want to talk to Stephen, uh, just reply to the members newsletter on Sunday and we'd love to have you. Yep. Which is another thing you get. Uh, you get an exclusive newsletter on Sundays. But uh, yeah, we, we I'd love to do another members uh, uh, episode or another ep uh, members segment because we had uh, Jackson Crawford on, uh, the professor from, from Colorado. He, he's really cool. Uh, I think I'm actually going to do something on his YouTube channel soon here. But, but we'd love to do more of those because I always find those really yeah. interesting because the the variety of people who have subscribed to the reload is is fascinating to me and i, I think it's uh, i think other people enjoy hearing it too yeah. so we'd love to do another one of those soon so yeah reach out we'll have you on all right that's it for this episode thank you